Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. So I spent most of my 20s doing youth ministry. When I first started out, every summer we'd take a group of about 40 high school students to do a mission trip in Reynosa, Mexico. We partnered with this huge, amazing church down there. But then a pretty violent drug war erupted in the city of Reynosa because it's a major corridor into the United States between these two rival cartels, Los Zetas and the Gulf Cartel, and over 15,000 people got killed in a short span. The murder rate was 17 times the highest rate Chicago has seen in the last century, so it was It was unreal, and needless to say, parents weren't super fired up about me taking their kids into the middle of that anymore, so we had to shift our plans a little, and we began working with a church plant. The Reynosa Church had started just across the border in McAllen, Texas, and it was awesome, except for one thing. Mexican food is my favorite food on planet Earth, and there's phenomenal Mexican food all along the border, except my favorite Mexican restaurant ever is not shockingly in Mexico. And I was a little bit bummed out about not going there anymore until the night before I went to McAllen for the first time when my buddy Joel called me and he's like, hey man, pack your passport. Just because the kids can't cross the border doesn't mean we can't. And we started a new tradition. At night, we'd get all the students back to the hotel, ready for bed, and then we'd hop in a van, drive over to Reynosa and eat at this restaurant called La Mansion Pariada. I have no idea what that means, but I like to imagine it's Mexican for Mansion of Deliciousness. And it wasn't in the nicest area of town, in a city that was already pretty violent at the time, but there was always this guy on the sidewalk out front. And no joke, he was a one-legged man with a three-legged dog, and just quite a sight to behold, but if you gave him 20 bucks, your car would still be there when you got back out. And it was a small price to pay for the chance to eat that food. And fast forward a couple years, we had another leader coming on the trip, a new guy. He was the dad of one of the students, awesome dude. And I called him and was like, hey, man, pack your passport. We're going to go to Reynosa and get good food at night. And he looked at me like, or he (laughs) called him. He's just like, you got to be out of your mind. Like, I'm not doing that. First of all, you told me that the schedule says we got to wake up at 445. I'm too old to get even less sleep than that. I'm tired just thinking about it. And also, Mike, like 20 people got shot in Reynosa last week. They blew up the newspaper building, man. Aren't you just a little bit nervous to cross the border? And I stopped and thought about it and realized, no. But why not? It's not because I'm brave. I've never been brave a day in my life. And now that I consider it, I don't really want to accidentally get shot by a bullet. And I should have thought about this sooner, but I'm not certain that guy and his dog are the world's most cracked security team because if someone steals the car, neither of them can chase it. Like, I had never stopped to think about any of that before. And as I look back now, like, three things hit me. One, I'm an idiot. Two, Mexican food is worth it. It's the best food ever, and if you think I'm wrong, I'll fight you. But three, probably most importantly, it's easy to go through life believing that the recipe for conquering fear is courage. That the recipe for pushing past pain is perseverance. That that the recipe for dealing with with disappointment is determination. That the, the recipe for overcoming sadness is just happiness. But we tend to think about all that stuff like it just floats out there and we gotta grab it out of thin air. 
somehow. Like, man, I, I hope I can get some of it. Maybe I can grab some, some grit. But what if it's all less ethereal than that? Like, what if courage, determination, happiness, perseverance, and more are actually fueled by something? What if they're fueled by joy? What if joy is the secret ingredient that produces all of those things in us? Because I actually think joy is a powerful anti-venom to all the poisons out there in our shattered world that leave our souls feeling weary. Because when joy is present in our hearts, it tends to crowd out all the things that drag us down and steal our hope. And the problem is we tend to think about joy like it's just as ethereal as any of the rest of that stuff. And like it's completely dependent on our circumstances. And so when life, like karate chops us in the throat, and like it'll do that sometimes, right? Then I'm like, well, I can't be joyful. Things aren't going the way that I want. And I know a lot of us are in that spot this morning. Like we're weary. And weariness tends to have this corrosive effect. We just feel it eating away at our soul's inside of us to the point that maybe we just barely dragged ourselves in here today and we're not excited for the Christmas season at all because we feel like the holidays are just a magnifying glass that's going to amplify our pain for some of us we will always remember 2022 as the year we lost our job or the year that long-awaited pregnancy ended in a miscarriage some of us are struggling economically as inflation keeps on inflating we keep on finding that there's too much month left at the end of the money and we don't know what we're going to do Some of us lost a loved one this year, and this will be our first holiday season without them. Or maybe we lost a mom or a dad or a child years ago, and every Christmas feels awful because every time we see the empty chair, there's this suffocating cloud of grief that makes us wonder if life will ever feel normal again. Some of us are sitting here dealing with health problems. It's been a long road, and we're not sure what the future holds. So many of us walked in here this morning at least a little bit weary with lives that are not the way we desperately want them to be. And the easy, natural conclusion when we're in that spot is to decide that joy is simply inaccessible to us. We can't grab it. We can't feel it. We can't fill our hearts up with it because the circumstances of our lives have conspired to cut us off from it. But that is simply not true. In fact, I think one of the greatest things about the Christmas story is what it has to teach us about finding joy even in the middle of of brokenness and weariness. And I'll tip my hand a little bit here, but Mary's story specifically paints a powerful picture for us that no matter what is happening to us or around us, joy is a choice that's always available to us. And I realize that might sound ridiculous and impossible, but it's not. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, crack it open to the book of Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the words on the screen or in the revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, please take one from the next steps table before you go. They're free and we love it when they disappear. But this is what Luke tells us. He says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. One of my favorite things about the Christmas story has always been Mary's response to the angel's greeting. Like Gabriel shows up, he's like, hey, you're pretty cool. God's with you. And Mary goes, what kind of a greeting is that? 
She's like, I don't even know whether I'm supposed to be excited right now because this angel's about to tell me that I won the lottery or whether I should panic because the angel's going to be like, and you need God with you because tomorrow you're going to get hit with a terrible stomach flu. Very gross, lots of vomiting. Also, you don't know it. Your donkey has drowned. She's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm being prepped for. Like, clearly, there's something that's going to follow this greeting, and I don't know whether it's good or whether it's bad, and that's a weird way to just show up in my room. And I love it, because almost every time an angel shows up in the Bible, the person who receives a visit from an angel is disturbed. But usually they're disturbed by the fact that this metaphysical presence just exploded into their reality out of nowhere. For Mary... It's less about that and more about the words that he said. And the thing is, she's not wrong. It was kind of a weird greeting. In most of our English translations, we translate the first word Gabriel said to Mary as greetings or hail, which is ridiculous. We should get rid of that in any modern English translation. Because it's like, I don't know how many experiences you've had when someone walked into a room and said greetings, but they're usually weird. That's not normal. I've never in my life had someone walk in and be like, hail. I don't know what I would do if they did. I would probably leave. Like, just, anyways, it's not even the word that Luke writes. He writes this Greek word, Cairo. And everywhere else, we see that in the Bible, we translate it, rejoice. Rejoice. And not only that, but in Luke 1.28, Cairo is a command. It's an imperative verb. Literally, Gabriel shows up in Mary's bedroom and he says, rejoice, you who are highly favored. Do it. Rejoice. Do it right now. And Mary's response is to say, what in the world does that mean and how do I do it? Like, what does that mean and how do I do it? And the answer to those two questions make all the difference for Mary and it makes all the difference for us 2,000 years later. And I think the first thing it means is that joy is a choice. Like, the fact that the angel can command Mary to rejoice means that joy is something within her control. She can not only choose joy, but she can choose to express joy by rejoicing. And I think for you and me, that's good news and also bad news. The good news is that no matter what's going on in us or around us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves a part of, we can choose joy. We can decide to allow it to begin invading our souls and crowding out fear and anxiety and worry and all of that stuff that leaves us weary because it's always on the table, which again is great because we are often weary. We, we frequently find ourselves in a spot where we don't feel like rejoicing. But the bad news is if joy is a choice that's available no matter what's going on in my life, then joy is kind of my responsibility. My joy is my job. My joy is my job. It's, it's not my parents' job or my wife's job or my kid's job or my boss's job or my neighbor or boyfriend or girlfriend or best friend or the government's job. It's not even God's job. It's not his problem. It's mine. It's my responsibility to choose joy and not just choose it but to go a step further and express it by rejoicing. And I get that that feels like kind of a weird thing to say in our culture because we tend to conceptualize joy as just being extra happiness, like happiness on steroids. If I find $20 in the pocket of an old coat, I'm happy. But if I find $100 in a parking lot, I'm joyful, baby. It's just like just over-the-top happiness. And then I say that it's a choice, and we're thinking, like, how can I choose that? That's not really a choice. I can't just make myself feel that if bad things are happening and, and good things aren't happening. But the thing is, 
this idea of happiness on steroids isn't really the biblical concept of joy. I mean, that certainly wasn't what the angel was commanding Mary to feel in this moment where her life had been absolutely turned upside down, when she found out she was going to be an unmarried teenage mother in a society where she could have been killed for that and would absolutely have been ostracized and rejected from community because of it. Like, super-duper happy just isn't a real great picture of her reality, and yet she's commanded to rejoice. And it's not that there's anything wrong with, with wanting to be happy. Happiness is beautiful. But we run into problems when we let our desire for happiness trip us up in our pursuit of joy. Because joy is powerful in a way that happiness never can be. It has the capacity to radically change our perspective on life. And the deeper I dig into the Christmas story and into Mary's response to the words of the angel, the more I realize joy isn't a product of our circumstances. It's the power that carries us through them. It's not a feeling based on the situation we're in. It's a conviction about who God is and how God loves us that helps us navigate every situation, good or bad. I'm going to say that again because it's critical that we understand it. Joy isn't just this feeling based on the situation we're in. It's a conviction about who God is and how God loves us that helps us navigate every single situation, good, bad, or in between. It isn't just something we feel. It's something we believe about the love and character of God that transcends our feelings. And it's easy to think it's not that important. It doesn't really matter, or that we don't need it in the good times as much as we need it in the bad times, but we're wrong. We need it all the time. I mean, clearly in in difficult seasons, joy brings us hope and peace and meaning that pulls us through. Not like the caboose at the end of the train, but like the engine just driving our lives forward. But we need joy even in good times, because we all know the world is super messed up. And if all we've got is a shallow happiness built on the circumstances we're in right now and not a foundation of joy in the character, love, and presence of God, then we tend to try to cling really tightly to happy moments. We tend to hold on to them because we're afraid of what might happen when the happiness goes away, but the happiness always goes away. And then we're left empty again, feeling hopeless and cut off and isolated and alone. And it's easy in those moments to come to the conclusion that that the space we're in defines who we are and determines where we're going. And that weariness is just a way of life we're going to have to live with because we're too messed up. And our situation is, is too far gone. It's just too late for us. Because we don't have to end up in that place. In 1975, the famed American jazz pianist Keith Jarrett was supposed to play a concert in Cologne, Germany. He'd been persuaded to come by this 17-year-old girl named Vera Brandes. But when he showed up at the concert hall, the piano she had on stage was just all sorts of wrong. It wasn't a grand piano, it was a baby grand, and it was old. Some of the keys were cracked, the pedals stuck, it was rotted out on the low end, and so the the bass didn't sound good even after it was tuned. And Jarrett, who was a noted perfectionist, told her that regrettably he just, he he couldn't play. But somehow the 17-year-old kid talked him into it. She's like, it's going to be fine, I'll get you a new piano, I made you a dinner reservation, go get some food, it's all going to work out. And so we went to dinner, and that got messed up too. 
And after a long day of traveling, he was able to shovel in a few bites of food before he had to run back to the concert hall to find the same janky piano still sitting there. And he sat down hungry, tired, frustrated, angry, and began to play. And his producer actually started to record this whole thing so that they could use it as a cautionary tale for musicians in the future. But then something happened. As Keith Jarrett compensated for the deficiencies of the instrument in front of him, he produced a performance that was simply magic. Like many people consider it not only the best performance of his career, but the best live jazz piano performance of all time. And that recording his producer made is the best-selling single solo jazz album in history. It went triple platinum. Because even a busted instrument can produce something beautiful in the hands of the master. Like, I don't know what all you've got going on right now. I don't know what's coming down the pipe in the future. I don't know what's making your soul weary, but I do know that no matter how busted you feel, God wants to write a beautiful song in and through your life. And he will constantly, relentlessly chase you down in order to make that happen. And that, that is why we can rejoice, because we have not been abandoned or forgotten by God. I mean, for us today, the command is the same as it was for Mary thousands of years ago. Choose joy, rejoice. And our response is the same. How in the world do I make that happen? It's not as easy as flipping a switch and saying, okay, I turned on the joy. Everything's good now. But the answer for us is the same as it was for Mary. And it's found in the second sentence Gabriel spoke to her. He said, rejoice, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. You are not abandoned. You are not alone. You may live in a world so shattered by sin that a sense of existential estrangement from the divine is impossible to avoid, but you are not isolated. God is with you. And not only is God with you, God is so desperate for you to know that he's with you, that he's coming in, into your womb, Mary, and then into your world. You are the virgin. Isaiah prophesied about 700 years ago who will conceive and give birth to a son called Emmanuel, God with us. In Genesis, God stooped down to shape dirt into humanity and then breathe life into it. And Jesus, God stooped down again to shape himself into humanity and breathe new life into us. He stepped in to invade the brokenness of our stories by making all things new and setting all things right. And I know it's not hard to look around the world today and see all the things that have yet to be set right. There's hatred and violence and frustration everywhere we turn. But the message of Christmas, God's megaphone to us in this season is I am with you. I'm with you. He, he crammed himself into a human body and crashed into the human story that Bethlehem night so we would know that we know that we know it's true. And if it's true that God is with us, we can build our lives on that. We can decide, hey, my joy is my job and I'm going to choose joy despite the fact that I'm weary, despite the fact that my life is not yet the way I want it to be because God is with me. And the thing about doing that, the thing about choosing joy is that it gives us the strength we need to power through the brokenness of the world around us. It really does serve as the antivenom to fear, sadness, worry, anxiety, and the other stuff that poisons our souls. Joy is powerful. It gives us strength. 
there's this incredible moment in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, where the people discover God's law. We talked a lot about Nehemiah last month, about how he self-sacrificially stepped into this moment where he had to build the future God wanted for his nation because they'd, they'd lost their security, they'd lost their country, they'd lost their freedom, they'd lost their faith. And then as they're rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple, they actually discovered the Old Testament book of the law and the ruins of the temple. And Ezra, the priest, gathered up all the people who'd been able to make their way back to Jerusalem. And for the first time in Ezra's lifetime, in any of their lifetime, they read the word of God out loud. And this is what we read. It says, so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving them meaning so the people who, or so the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I love it so much because I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a tradition where sometimes it felt like for things to be sacred, they had to be somber. Like the most holy things were the moments when at church we stood there silently and still and looked real sad. And that's how we knew that it was a really sacred moment. Like I got in trouble once at nine years old taking communion because I shook the cup a little and the drops went in. And the older lady at my church said I ruined communion for her because she couldn't believe I wasn't sadder and more mournful in that moment. You know about the fact that Jesus forgave me and set me free. (laughs) But it's like we have this idea in our world that sacred and somber or sacred and suffering go together. And it's not that suffering can't be sacred. It can, and it often is, but celebration is also sacred. There's something about choosing and expressing joy that's holy and that's meaningful. And I think at some point we got it twisted a little and we thought that holy things are are the least fun things. But in this moment, Nehemiah and Ezra are telling people that the exact opposite is true. They're like, no, no, no. This moment is so cool. It's so good. It's so sacred. It's so holy that we need to celebrate, rejoice, throw a party, get some good food going, put some steaks on the grill, share them with your neighbors. Today is a day we celebrate. And I think the beauty of that is that they're like reconstituting the nation of Israel. And they're standing up there as the leaders saying, listen, do you know how the nations around us are going to know who God is? Do you know how the people living in darkness are going to see his light? Do you understand how they're meant to get a picture of what he wants to do in and through our lives, of the way that he's present and the way that he loves? They're going to see it in us when we're fully alive, when we're living the beauty and the meaning and the hope And the joy-filled stories, he dreamed us up and knit us together to live, despite the fact that the world around us is broken. That's how they will know. That's how they'll see his love and his life alive in us. And joy in his presence is the thing that gives us the strength to make that happen. So I think God's message to Israel 3,000 years ago, his message to Mary 2,000 years ago, is, is the same as his message to us today. It's that no matter how scary or messed up the circumstances of your life may be right now, no matter what's happening to you 
or around you, no matter how you're feeling, you can be filled up with joy because he loves you and he is with you. You can celebrate, even if the chapter of the story you're living right now is not a very good chapter. Because you know it's not the last chapter of your story. I think when we realize that, when we say, hey, my joy is my job and I can choose it because I know who God is and I know how he loves me. What we find is that joy has the power to carry us through our circumstances. I think, like no matter what, no matter where you're at right now, no matter what you walked in here today carrying, if you do not choose joy, you will not have the strength to face all the trials that are still out ahead of you in this life. The Bible promises us they're coming. James tells us you're going to have trials of, of many kinds. And the Greek word we translate many kinds there literally means multicolored. James is saying you're going to have as many different types of trials in this life as there are colors. Some of them will be light blue and mild. Some will be bright red and painful. But all of them are unavoidable. And unless you learn to build your life on a foundation of joy... Unless you choose to decide in this moment, I will rejoice. I will hold on to hope because I know who God is and I know he's with me. It's going to be very hard to conquer those trials and continue moving forward. But when you know who God is, when you know how God loves, and when you know that whatever places you walk into, God walks with you, then you can be grateful every day for breath in your nostrils and a heartbeat in your chest. When you know God walks with you, you're strong. You're strong. You know, we live in a world that will conspire to steal life from us, to cut us off from everything Jesus stepped into the human story to promise us we could have, but it can't win. It cannot steal life from us when we have joy because the truth is joy is a problem for your problems. It's a problem for all of that stuff that conspires to rot you out on the inside and make you weary. I said earlier that weariness is corrosive. We can feel it eating away at us from the inside, and that's true. Weariness is corrosive, but joy is contagious. See, joy isn't just a problem for your problems. Joy is a problem for the problems of everyone around you, of all the souls you crash into, because when we're filled with it, it bubbles out of us. It overflows, and when we express it by rejoicing, it changes the game for other people, and it lights up the darkness of our world. And so my prayer this Christmas is just that despite the fact that the world is not the way any of us want it to be, despite everything broken going on around us and going on inside of us, despite the shattered reality of our lives, we would be a people that celebrate and rejoice well. That we would choose joy because God so loved us that he bent the arc of human history toward presence. That he came to be with us and I just pray that our joy and our rejoicing would point our weary world toward him this Christmas. And I know it won't always be easy. It won't. It's not simple or comfortable to continually choose joy despite the fact that our lives are messed up. And we have a lot of questions about how. Like how is it even possible? How is God going to set everything right? How can the things I hope for become my reality? How can I move from this place where I am to the place God promises he has for me? How? And it's natural to wonder how and to ask that question. Mary did. 
She had a whole lot of how questions. How will this come to pass? How is God going to make this happen? How can I rejoice? And I love it because Gabriel didn't really answer any of those questions. Just didn't. She kept asking how questions and he kept giving who answers. How? Who? How? God? How? God is with you. Because in life we may not always know how, but we know who. And so we can rejoice no matter what. Because joy isn't just a fuzzy feeling we have, it's a conviction that lives deep in our souls that God is with us. And we can choose it at every moment because he stepped in. Because of Emmanuel. Because he's present. We pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for peace, even when our lives aren't perfect. Thank you for the fact that you came down and stepped into our story. Thank you for your love. Thank you for caring enough to breathe new life into us. Lord, I just pray in this moment where so many of us are weary because of so many things, where life is so far from our hopes and, and our dreams in so many places, that you would help us choose joy, that you would thunder in our souls, that you are present with us, that Christmas really would be a megaphone that reminds us that in any moment and any circumstance, we can choose to rejoice because we are not abandoned and we are not alone. We are loved. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.